Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor, specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'm delighted to be welcoming back Dr. Bill Thomas, also known as the geriatrician on a mission. He is the founder of changingaging.org, the author of multiple books, and is a longtime innovator in all kinds of things aging. He first came to national attention for his groundbreaking work on improving nursing home care and creating culture change in long-term care through the Eden Alternative and the Greenhouse Project. But in more recent years, he has really shifted his focus, I would say, on fostering independence and quality of life and just a different approach to aging for older adults and encouraging us to tell ourselves different stories about aging He has written books and developed performances to challenge the conventional narratives we have about aging and to spearhead a national conversation to help counter ageism and really come up with better ways for us to live as a society and to support our older adults. So we had him here on the podcast a year ago for episode 55, and during that episode, he talked about his projects to develop better housing models for better aging including his work pioneering an affordable, universally designed small house called Minka. And we also talked about the work that he and his team were doing trying to foster more supportive communities. And at that time, he mentioned what was a newer concept called MAGIC, an acronym that stands for Multi-Ability, Multi-Generational, Inclusive, and Communities. A year ago, he said he would come back to update us and talk more about these projects. And so I'm delighted to have him back here today to continue this conversation about housing models and communities and other ways that we can help people thrive as they get older. So, Bill, welcome back to the show. Boy, that went by fast. A year? <laughs> I know. Boom. Boom. <laughs> one, so, one, trip, one trip around the sun did it. Did it. Yeah. Okay. You know, you've done so much work over your career and you're not, I have to say, as one geriatrician speaking to another geriatrician, you're not that old. Right. (laughs) You're you're not even 60 yet, but you've done so much in your career and also in recent years. So I, I find when I write your bio and intro that it can be a little bit of a challenge to summarize things. And so I thought I would love for us to start by you telling us in your own words, what kinds of issues and projects you're focused on right now related to aging? Okay, I'm going to introduce a concept that I think is going to be helpful to, I hope will be helpful. So I've been plotting an escape route mm. from the gerosphere, the gerosphere. Okay. I want to talk about the gerosphere for a minute. So as you know, the word gero, that means aging in Greek and sphere is like world. So the world of aging. So the world of aging in American society is a kind of a strange place. It is absolutely packed with good intentions and warm vibes and love and good mojo. And also some really bad, kind of terrible misconceptions and assumptions that lead people to do things in kind of strange ways. So 
I'm really interested in creating innovations that are not based on the ordinary assumptions people have about aging in America mm. and trying to escape that and mm-hmm. think about people who are living in, a, in the later part of life mainly and primarily as people mm-hmm. and less so as older people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you just said you want to get away from the normal or common assumptions that we have about mm-hmm. aging. Tell us a little bit more about what those assumptions are. Well, I, I think first and foremost, and you and I share a, a heritage in terms of the training we've done in the practice we've, we've, uh, we've been engaged in. But, you know, the first and foremost among those is that aging is decline. Mm-hmm. So in our training and in training of nurses, social workers, we're really taught that getting older means being diminished in important ways. And that's what aging is. Aging mm-hmm. is, is how time diminishes us. That's the story. That we're mm-hmm. told. So I sometimes refer to that as declinism. Mm-hmm. And it's that idea that aging equals decline. Mm. That, Counter to that, I'm much more interested in the idea of aging as late life development. So we we have a whole well-developed field in America called early childhood development. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. But if you look out there and try to find the field of late life development, it can be really hard to find because most people are spending most of their time thinking about aging in the context of decline rather than thinking about it in terms of growth. Yes. And I have to, you know, confess that I feel like I'm somewhat guilty as charged, you know, that a lot of what we have on Better Health While Aging on the site and the podcast is, you know, about problems that come up and, and how to address that. And I feel on one hand, you know, that this is my training and my work is, is in helping people with those problems and that I see people suffer much more than they have to because they didn't get the right help from it. And I also feel like, well, this is unfortunate because it's true. If you were to look at the site, a lot of it is about the, the problem side of aging and there's not enough and not as much as I hope to eventually have about the other side. Well, first off, I would, I would certainly never take it as a, a fault thing. This is the, this is the world we were introduced to. This is how medical practice is structured. You know, it's a, it's, it was handed down to us. And with the only obligation we have is to hand something better down to the next generation. So I, let me give you a way that I think about this, that uh, listeners might find helpful because you bring up a good point. Look, the longer you live, the more crazy, weird stuff happens. And if you live a really long time, lots of really tough stuff happens. That's true for all humans. Mm-hmm. And um, so to say, oh, aging has no problems, that's ridiculous. Of course, there's lots of problems. You've been living a long time. Things get complicated. But I want to put this in the a context that we're, a lot of people are familiar with. Let's imagine it's a Tuesday morning. And your family is getting ready. The kids are getting ready to go out the door. And one of the kids has a test. You know, there's a math test. And there's two things you can yell out the door as they run to the bus. You can yell to your little Johnny, Johnny, I bet you're going to get an A on that test. Okay. You can yell that out. Right. Or you can yell, Johnny, don't fail the math test. Right. 
So both are, I guess, you know, messages of encouragement. But think about this. What does it mean to say, hey, you know, go for that A on that math test versus to be told, don't fail. Right. And that's really encapsulates a lot of what you and I are talking about, about the vision of aging and the philosophy of aging and so on. Most of the time we're telling older people, don't fail. Mm -hmm. And only a small amount of the time are we telling older people, man, get an A on that aging test. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of living, a lot of growing to do. And we need to take care of these issues because you have a lot of growing to do. Yes. So, so I'll give you an example. Uh, what we, we in the field call presbycusis, and that means how our hearing changes as we get older. Mm-hmm. And uh, if a person has limited hearing, it puts an enormous strain on their personal relationships and it diminishes their capacity to be in social situations. And it can lead to social isolation and really negative outcomes. So, so it is true. Your aging changes in ways that require attention later in life for many people. But the reason to fix your hearing is so that you can be out there in the world contributing the wisdom of your years or the experience that you have or enjoying the planet, whatever it is that works for you. So. Really, I think our job is to put the problems into the bigger context of how do we facilitate growth? Right. And I just gave, you know, helping people hear better, that facilitates growth. Right. Yes. Well, I love it. It's wonderful. So to come back to how you, so when people ask you, you know, what are you working on now? Aside from saying I'm plotting an escape from the derosphere, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was just looking through, you know, your, you know, what's on your website right now. And cause I think you used to be known as the person who improved nursing homes yeah. and long-term care. And I remember I saw you at aging 2.0 in the in November of 2017 and yep. you said you wanted to starve the beast and kind of move away from the dependence industry. Yeah, right. There you go. And you, you had something that was kind of called the independence rising movement. You were doing yep. a few years ago. I don't know if you're still doing it now. Your sure performance piece on yep. uh, disrupting aging. So, so what are the kind of um, short phrases you use right now to say what you're focused on or most interested or working on? Yeah, that independence rising is really, I think, a key kind of rallying cry for me right now. And it's this idea that we, we opened up sort of edging around this. But, you know, if you think about innovation and new ideas and ways of being in the world, I'm sort of seeing a, a fork in the road where there are certain solutions that actually make problems associated with aging worse. And then there's solutions that make those problems better. And I'll give you an example. I remember years ago, and I'm sure you've had this experience many times. Years ago, I admitted a patient to a nursing home, to my practice in a nursing home. It was February. That's upstate New York and blowing snow, ice everywhere. I'm out in the parking lot and I see this man coming into the nursing home with his family. So I'm like, wow, what's that? I go inside and I find out, oh, he's the new patient moving in. He's going to be part of my practice. And I say, hey, how are you? And we, you know, we get introduced and I say, I'll be back tomorrow. You know, I can't wait to get to know you better. 
So the next day I do a physical exam and kind of look them all over and everything. And, you know, here's a guy who was living home alone and now qualified for nursing home care and was moving into the nursing home. Five days later, I'm making rounds and I see this man who I'd known for about a week in a wheelchair being pushed to the dining room. Mm. And I said to the staff, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What happened? A week ago, this man got out of a car and walked across an icy parking lot to move in here. Less than a week later, he's in a wheelchair. What is that about? And, you know, you could predict the answer. They were like, well, it's so long to the dining hall and it takes him so long to get there and it's just easier. Mm. Just put him in a wheelchair and blah, blah, blah. You, you know the story. So, so what I, you know, what I came to realize is that many of the responses we have to what we'll call the problem of dependency, those responses actually make dependency worse. We could even say the problem of, you know, in a way, vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. You know? So the problem, so the problem of vulnerability the solutions actually make vulnerability worse. Yes, they so create dependency or foster. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there's there's even a technical name for this. They call it a problem maintaining solution. Mm -hmm. So your solution to the problem is more of the problem. Right. He was a little bit slow, and now we've made him slower and less slower. mobile. Yes. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, reduced his stamina, reduced his uh, balance. I mean, all, all the stuff we know. Right. So what I'm interested in is a different approach where we say our goal, if I had a magic wand, the goal of Independence Rising is that people get to live where they want, how they want. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. So. I don't, you tell me where you want to live. Tell me how you want to live. And my job is to do everything I can to help you realize that. Mm -hmm. So we talk about independence. That's the, that's the way I define independence in this context in American society. You're independent if you can live where you want and how you want. So I'm, I'm guessing, only guessing, you are living where you want to live, mainly and how you want to live, mainly, and you would consider yourself to be independent. Yes, I'm very Great. fortunate. Well, let's keep that going. All right. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah. Let's keep, let's keep up with that. That seems like a good thing. Yes, yes. Well, I, I guess, you know, I think a little bit about the thing that uh, you probably hear this concern raised all the time. It's the person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's often brought up by the by adult children, less by the older person themselves, but it's, you know, my, uh, my parent is insisting on living in, you know, the big house where they've been for 40 years with all the stairs, too much maintenance. And, and actually, you know, a year ago, we talked about this, that you feel that houses can kill people, right? That people end up in these, these houses that were well chosen for a certain time in their life yeah. and now present all these challenges. Right. And what the older person often wants is to stay in that big house with all its challenges. Um, yeah. With nobody coming in to help them <laughs> and well, nobody worrying about them. So yeah. what are some ways to reframe that or help everybody oh, rethink yeah, that? Sure. And I know the people listening. I know from experience that the people listening to your podcast, they think about this a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, the culture doesn't provide us with much 
the other than saying, for, I'm, for example, mom, I'm worried about you. That's, that's about the strength of the argument. Right. It's not a great argument. Let me just tell you. Yes. Uh, yes. But that person, that's what they want for their independence is to basically yes. continue living the way they I, did when they were 42 <laughs> or 62. Yep. You know, I mean, often the, those kinds of houses are manageable for people, depends on the person, but until they're in their 70s, 80s, or even 90s. So here's two bits of language that people can employ if it seems to be the right thing to do. Number one is all to remind people, you love your house, but your house doesn't love you. Mm. It's not a two-way street here. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And I can freely and totally and completely acknowledge that you love your house. And that is a true statement. And it's also true your house does not love you. Mm-hmm. And the house is simply an instrument for organizing daily life in a way that is consistent with what you want and what you wish for. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the first thing second thing i would say is that there is a a dynamic you're aware of uh, as well but i i sometimes call it big house small life small house big life mm. so how many people have you encountered who are living in the big house but actually have not only a tiny social circle but they actually even live are only living in 500 square feet of the house and the rest of it is not really occupied. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to say that housing doesn't by itself does not have moral value or moral meaning. Housing by itself is just a tool. So you don't, you don't open your drawer and look at a screwdriver and say, Wow, that screwdriver, that's that's really important to me, that screwdriver, you know, because you think of the screwdriver as a tool that helps you do stuff. And I think a lot of helpful insight is to for older people to look at housing like a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. You know, is this working for me? Is this house helping me live how I want to? And again, I'll say it right out there. If the answer is yes, I want to live in a 5,000 square foot split level ranch at the end of a dirt road, that's what I want. Then you know what I say? Then do it. But at the same time, be aware that that is really, really an expensive choice. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about energy and risk and social isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And often, you know, requires somebody to come, may require someone eventually to come in and help you. Yeah. So great. So yeah. So let's keep going on housing because it seemed to me in looking, you know, over the past year or two for you, that housing has been a huge theme for you. You developed something called the the Minka House. So um, I know we talked about it on the podcast last year, but... Well, lots of reports. Yeah, let's maybe start by recapping what is a Minka House and what led you to develop it. And then maybe you can tell us how the Minka and related projects have um, evolved. Like we were saying, I'm interested in housing as an engine of independence. Mm. So... I like that phrase, engine of independence. It's going to pull the train. It is a device, a tool, a, a way, a, a, an architecture that helps you live the way you want to. So 
I've spent a lot of time traveling the world looking at different kinds of housing that older people occupy. Mm -hmm. And it really seems like a smaller, more compact house that is less expensive, that is designed from the beginning with universal design principles and makes use of advanced digital technology. That kind of house has unique value to older people. Mm -hmm. And so Minka is really, we use the word Minka, it's a Japanese word. I'll tell you the story about it in a minute, but it's a Japanese word that means a house for regular people. And what we're trying to do is create a house, a type of housing that from the very conception is designed for singles and couples. That's how it's designed. And, you know, could a, a family with kids live there? Yes, but it's actually designed for singles and couples. So young people who are singles and couples, old people who are singles and couples, we don't care. So singles and couples housing, small footprint, energy efficient, easy to maintain, universal design, digital native, house. Because a lot of the times people hold on to the big house because they don't want to be a resident in an institution. Mm -hmm. So the Minka is, is meant to be a third way. You have to stay in the big house, move into an institution, and in the middle is Minka. Mm -hmm. So it does involve some change, but you have your own house. And your own house is designed for how you live right now. And it's perfect. And you're not likely to be having to add on a nursery you know, because you're probably not going to have kids, but it's designed for the lives of people living a single head of household and couples and helps them have their own house. So that's Minka. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell you one quick story about Minka. The, no, no, uh, please do. The, yeah, the Minka is um, designed to use materials very efficiently, uh, to be very efficient to construct. And there's an interesting historical story about this. In the 1700s in Japan, they, they started trading with the West and all these business people started making lots of money. And so these new merchants started building big houses, mm. but the samurai did not like that they were building big houses. Those are the nobility. So the nobles said, you can use this much material to build your house and not one bit more. And if you use more than this, we'll chop your head off. So people being people, they figured out how to build the most house with the least material. And that's a Minka. Okay. And yeah, I love the, I love the issues. Yeah, that, that is a great, uh, I, I, that I is love a great that. story. Humans just are like, oh, fine, then we'll do this. You know, I love the creativity. Of yeah. It, so. Yeah, nothing like putting on a few constraints to just foster yeah. uh, true? So creativity. Can I, can I just say, that's, that's actually a really profound statement about aging as well, mm -hmm. that I, I think often gets bypassed, that constraint is a source of creativity, mm -hmm. and lack of constraint uh, often means, often leads to a lack of creativity. And so aging provides certain constraints that can inspire or can inspire greater creativity. So, so true. So you helped design and create the, the house. And what I find so interesting about the house is, is also that, you know, it has, um, 
it's not just uh, set up to to implement digital technologies, but it's also um, pretty easy to produce, right? And construct. It can. It's built out of pieces, right? That can be assembled. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's really a, a house that the best way I can think of it is it's really like Lego blocks that uh, go together in three days to make a house on site. So we, we use uh, robots to cut the pieces and then we take pieces of wood and make them into these insulated boxes. And then the insulated boxes are fastened together to make what appears to be a completely normal little house. Okay. But there's no regular construction in any part of it. And so a minka is about how many square feet? And so is it a studio or is the bedroom separate? Well, yeah, the smallest one we have is 480 square feet, and that's kind of a studio. We have a one-bedroom that's 640 square feet, and then a kind of a two-bedroom or one-bedroom and an extra room that's 800 square feet. And that's where that's where we think the sweet spot is for couples and singles, mm-hmm. is uh, somewhere high 400s, low 800s in terms of square feet. And I, I want to make a point here I think is important, which is just about everybody has experience living in a small, poorly designed apartment where you probably yourself, you know, you get out of the shower and you hit the toilet. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you can't open the refrigerator and the oven at the same time, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the difference between 500 square feet and a minka and that is that in the minka every cubic millimeter is designed uh, to maximize use of the space and that's why people will sometimes say oh i couldn't live in less than 2000 square feet well actually uh, if it's designed right you can right Uh, you may not you may not be able to store all your stuff but you can Uh uh-huh okay well, I want to come back to Minka in a little bit, but I want to first embed it in some of the other, you know, broader ideas that you have written about, sure. which you, you know, may or may not still be a focus for you. But I did read how you had written about how, you know, part of the Minka is to be part of this revolution in architecture, technology, and culture. Right. And that you felt that these, this, this triple approach was really crucial to the independence rising movement. So can you talk a little bit more about that, why you think those three issues are so important together. Yeah, uh, it's together. See, that's one of the big problems, again, with a problem-centered approach to aging. We we think in terms of specific sets of problems and how to solve those. And if you pull back and you look at people, humans, we solve, constantly solve problems in a more holistic way by blending architecture, the buildings we occupy, the tools we use, and the cultural assumptions that guide our behavior. So if you, if you want to revolutionize aging, those three things are going to be absolutely essential to the work you're doing. And the trouble is, if you just focus on one of them, you fall back into the problem-solving that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and I'll, I'll give you an example. You and I uh, often attend the Aging 2.0 Technology Conference, and um, what you'll often find are beautifully clever technology solutions that have no connection to culture or architecture. They're just a piece of technology that does a thing. 
which is great, but doesn't change aging. You know, right. it just helps you solve this particular problem. So I'm more interested in systematic approaches where I'm blending technology with architecture and culture to create more holistic solutions. That's where I feel most comfortable. Right. And by architecture, I mean, you know, we've talked about the Minka house. So that's your that's your living environment. And uh, I liked what you said earlier, you know, that your house is an instrument for organizing your daily life, but that, you know, where your house, what's around your house yeah, is obviously very yeah. important to uh, how your house feels and what it enables you to do easily or do less easily. So, right. so maybe you can talk a little bit more about community well, yeah. and also like culture, like what right. are you envisioning that, you know, so how does the Minka house fit into a sort of larger or something like Minka fit into a larger conception of the, the built environment that mm -hmm. we all live in and the culture that goes with that? Yeah. So great, really great question. So if you take, if you just stop and look at what makes a great community to get old in? What makes it really livable? The answer is almost always the same thing that makes it a great place to be a young person in. You know, I mean, you know, the great, the same thing that makes a community a great place to be a human in. So, what we find is that if you design the built environment, you know, neighborhoods, streets, stores, transportation, if you design all that to meet the needs of older people, you've just covered the entire, you've covered everything. Everybody's uh, happy. Everybody's happy. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a clever little cartoon that shows uh, heavy snowfall and little kids standing in front of a school. And there's a, a custodian who's got a shovel. And he's saying to one of the kids who's using a wheelchair, hang on, I'll shovel these steps. And then the kids can go in and then I'll shovel the ramp and then you can go in. Mm. And the little, the little kid in the cartoon says, yeah, but if you shovel the ramp first, we can all go in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the, you know, how do we create spaces that are good to be humans in? Mm -hmm. Second thing about culture, and I want to bring up something we talked about a year ago. Uh, that's a term we call magic. So M-A-G-I-C, uh, it's an abbreviation for multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive community. And we think this is kind of the next big thing in our field, which is to really openly address age segregation mm. as an issue. Mm -hmm. And also to explore the fact that not only do we segregate older people according to their age, we also, after we segregate them by age, we then segregate them by ability. Mm -hmm. So if you're over a certain age, you live over here. And if you can think clearly in this way, you live here. But if you have trouble remembering this, you live over here. Mm -hmm. And we, we sort of divide, not only not only do we segregate older people from younger people, we segregate older people living with their cognitive, full cognitive faculties. We segregate them from older people living without uh, some of those faculties. Right. So what we think is, let's throw the whole segregation thing out. Mm -hmm. And instead of independent living, 
assisted living, skilled nursing, CCRC, memory care. Let's focus on making great places to live. And then those great places to live will be great for people of different ages and abilities and backgrounds. Right. Right. Well, that that is a, a beautiful vision. And I'm sure it's true that, you know, we've in many ways fostered this segregation by ability. But also, I know that, you know, the experience in CCRCs, you know, from people who, who have studied is that some of it is is at the request of some of the older adults themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and so there are right. these, these stories of how someone who's in the independent living part has an illness or a stroke or something and then needs a walker. And that part of the reason why they are asked to, you know, not keep using that dining room is, is not mm-hmm. just that the facility has come up with these ability segregationist policies, but that the facility yeah. gets complaints from some of the residents because there are a certain number of older people themselves who, you know, in a way prefer or are requesting a separation right? from that. You so are. Yeah. So how do we, what are your thoughts on that? And how do we, how do we address that aspect? Because, you know, it's been said that, well, they live there. They, they do have a right to, to articulate some preferences about what they want their living environment to be like. Very true. So of course, you know, you're bringing up a, a, a foundational element of the human experience, which is isms, mm-hmm. racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, lots of isms out there. So here's the thing. Pick any group that is marginalized and you will find evidence that members of the marginalized group actually will internalize part of the unfounded cultural criticism of their identity. And I'll I'll give you a concrete example. And you, I would guess, were not subject to this based on your achievements. But in elementary school, there's long been a belief that boys are better at math than girls. Mm -hmm. And the message is often given to young boys. Oh, you're good at math. And to young girls, well, it's okay. Girls aren't that good at math. And so what happens is through a a psychological process known as priming, young girls are taught to believe that they're not as good at math. And then when they encounter difficulty in math class, it seems to validate the prejudice. Mm -hmm. And then the prejudice is validated and that reinforces the stereotype, okay? So let's go, now let's take that. And I, how was you, how are you in math? Well, it's it's funny you ask. I'm not very good at math. I'm disproportionately worse at math than at everything else. And my father was actually a physicist, very good at math. Oh and, my and he actually ex- expected, you know, both his children to be quite good at math. And I was the older one. And it was always just extremely mystifying to him. Yes. So So maybe it was internalizing the messaging. Yes. But hold on. Let's be clear here. You took calculus physics and college calculus in college. Is that correct? Yes. No, I can, I can do it, but, comp- but it's, it's harder than everything else. <laughs> oh, you're just so smart. That's the thing. But I can do, I can do enough of it. But yes, it's, a, it's an interesting yeah, thing. No. But I think what you're getting at is that, um, that some of this is, you know, that we, we are all internalizing some ageism. Yes, exactly. So, so let's now take it to 
older people living in a place that is in t- the place you live is based on ageism. Right. It's like me making you live in a math compound. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's all math, all day, everywhere. Okay. These are places they're living in that are soaked in ageism. They exist because of ageism. And I have to say, it's quite unfair to say to older people who lived an entire life in an ageist society and then moved into a place that by definition is ageist. It's in the name of the place. And then expect them not to be ageist to other people or ableist, you know, for people using a walker or whatever. That's not going to happen. It's baked in. Um, So my point about this is that all the isms of all types and kinds, the best disinfectant for them is sunlight education and conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, by sunlight, I mean, like, just call it out. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, nobody, very few people really want to be want to be prejudiced you know a lot of his unconscious bias so you shine the light on it you teach people about what the differences really are um for example we'll go back to math you know despite uh, your experience generally speaking girls are no better and no worse at math than boys Mm -hmm. individual results vary and then conversation where you just get people talking about yo, this is ageist, you know, this is not right. This is something that we should not uh, accept as a part of our community. Um, And if you turn it around and think about this for a minute, imagine a uh, retirement community where the people were up in arms that a person of Asian descent was eating dinner in their dining room and they didn't want that person there. Yeah. You'd be like, that's kind of not cool, man. Yeah. Sorry. You guys are going to have to get over it. (laughs) Yeah. You are going to have to get over it. Is what we would say. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned this word community. So, so hence, I guess that's, you know, part of the advantage of having communities that are multi-generational and have just a mix of people of different ages, generations, and abilities is that it, you know, makes it easier, I think, to get away from, uh, from some of these these isms, what are some other things that you think are important in terms of features of communities that help them be the kind of place that foster independence and a better sort of story about aging and a better experience about aging? Yeah, I I just I think the key word, the uh, the word that is the most penetrating and insightful in all of this is reciprocity. Reciprocity. And mm-hmm, so. Again, if you start with this problem defect approach to aging, and then you add in people who are kind and compassionate, you get a kind of benevolent despotism Mm -hmm. uh, where young people boss older people around for their own good. And because it's kind and the compassionate thing to do. And I I don't like that. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in reciprocal relationships that acknowledge differences and actually use the differences to the advantage of the community. 
So I'll just say it's very hard to build a really authentic, enlivening human community with people of only one type. Mm -hmm. Um, We tend, the best communities, the ones that seem the most vibrant to us, mix people with differences together. What those differences are, and I'm, I'm not, there's lots of ways to have differences. But when you when you standardize standardize to a high degree uh, the people in a social milieu, it actually breeds uh, some unhealthy type behavior. So I'll give you one example: bullying behavior in schools is related, at least in part, by clustering young people very very tightly according to their age, and in mm. some cases according to their academic ability, mm-hmm. so that the people in that little social milieu, these kids, they magnify what appear to be completely trivial differences and make them into intense bullying experiences, whether it's weight or height or vocabulary or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. national background, whatever. The, The point is, you get less of that kind of behavior when there's more differences in the group to start with. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. So these eight communities we were talking about, where you segregate older people, it mag- people magnify the differences between them, and they think that if you're using a walker, you're totally different than me. Mm-hmm. When in fact, you're just, you know, it helps you keep your balance. That's it. What's the big deal? No right. Big deal. Right. Wow. That's very insightful. Well, well, let's go back to um, you know, Minka and magic. So over. The last year, what has happened? So we spent a year at the University of Southern Indiana. We were just getting started with this when we were talking last last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, The University of Southern Indiana. And we spent a year working with students and faculty, administration, local elders, developing the concept for a new kind of housing on campus. The University of Southern Indiana, it's in Evansville, Indiana, they're planning on building a village of minkas on campus and then making those minkas available to people of different ages. So it's going to be a housing option of small cottages of people of different ages living together uh, and, in close proximity. With each and other. how many minkas are we, t- like a dozen? Fifteen, yeah. Fifteen, okay. So we are uh, just had some meetings today about this, and we're kind of moving forward to get that project in the ground in 2020. We are also uh, doing a project called the Village of Hope, which is uh, an area agency on aging in Pennsylvania, Clearfield County. Uh, they bought a no longer occupied elementary school, and they're turning that into a community center and putting 50 minkas right around the elementary school. Mm-hmm. and creating a village that's based on hope mm-hmm. and based on growth and connection and vitality. That's going to be magic. So multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive. So it's not a dementia village or a diabetes village, mm-hmm. hypertension village. Right, right. It's meant to mix everybody and be supportive of people with dementia. Yeah. Well, ideally, all our environments would be supportive of people with dementia. Ideally. Because we have a lot of people with dementia. <laughs> I know. And we, we have, the, not only do we have that, we also have 
a very low level of dementia literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in not just I was going to say in the public, yeah, but also in the medical fields as well. Right. Well, I have you know I'm going to be talking with Kevin Peterson, your、oh, great. co-founder for Changing Aging, about、yeah. the, more about the Village of Hope. Oh, good. So maybe I'll ask you a few other things related to Minka and magic. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is, so Minka sounds like a great option. You know, if you want to live in in a smaller space, or you know, when we talk about new developments, or for co-housing, people could put together a bunch of minkas, and maybe in a moment you can tell the audience, you know, if they wanted to build, you know, get their own minka house, how would they do it? But but I'm also thinking about how you know, 15 cottages, even if they're 500 square feet, takes a certain amount of、yeah. land area. Right. You know, I'm here in San Francisco where we have a, a huge housing crunch and space crunch. So, are you planning also on a version kind of similar to Minka that would be, you know, kind of like apartments, right? You know, when you have people in a denser area. Yeah. Are Are you thinking about anything like that? You know, it's really weird. Well, it's not a coincidence, but you talk, mentioned San Francisco. We could say Seattle. You know, Nashville. A bunch of housing markets around the country that well, the are, places with walkable neighborhoods generally do、yes. not have. A big chunk、no. of land where you can put fifteen cottages. For a good point, they don't have it because that's why it's walkable. It's, exactly, they have, you know, dense、uh, development, and I think that's really beautiful. It's super attractive. People, sh- you know, San Francisco has a massive housing deficit. They should be building more apartment buildings, and I don't see really any. I don't even see any space for a minka in. The city of San Francisco, not even on my radar. But most older people in America actually live in suburbs. That numerically, if you take urban, suburban, rural, the most, the largest group of elders in America are in suburban settings, and I think that the suburbs were largely conceived of as child rearing. Operations. I don't know.、Mm-hmm. You know that's where the focus has been. But there's a wonderful opportunity to retrofit suburbs into singles and couples housing, while you maintain the character of the neighborhood. And part of doing that is something called an accessory dwelling unit,、mm-hmm. ADU. And your listeners are probably familiar with this because you cover this these kinds of issues. But An accessory dwelling unit is an extra place to live on、mm-hmm. a single house lot. So sometimes it would be an apartment over a garage or a, a little a carriage house in the back that was converted to an apartment, whatever it might be. So there is enormous opportunity to add accessory dwelling units to suburban tract housing, and in doing so. Increased density, which is actually something these communities need,、uh, free up housing for use by families, which is what the houses were actually built for, and help elders stay in their community and be part of their community. So, we think accessory dwelling units are really key.、Uh, we also believe that there's going to be a movement to knock down some houses that are no longer really livable,、mm-hmm. and. Replace them with three or four minkas on a single lot with the same footprint.、Mm-hmm. So what you get, you go from one 
derelict single family house to four minkas and you have the same footprint on the on the property so we think that's that's going to happen as well and then you know when you talk about sort of clustering them i do think about you know your your greenhouses right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah which had uh if i remember i mean i think there there are variations but you know you you know everybody gets their own room kind of clustered around a common living space and i'm thinking right now about you know some of my my patients i do house calls yeah. And I have some, you know, some people in their in their nineties. Some some are younger yeah. who are living in their home, and and part of the way that's manageable is that they have somebody living there with them, yeah, to help right. them, either yeah. a family member or somebody who's paid, yeah, yeah, because sometimes that's necessary to stay there. And so I was sort of wondering. So first of all, if someone were in a minka and then needed somebody to move in and help them with uh-huh. daily tasks. Is, is there space for that? Or is the thought that, you know, when people have a, a cluster of minkas that, that someone who provides that extra help could live, you know, within the, the cluster and be, you know, going to help people with whatever they might need a little assistance with? Because often being able to get a little assistance is what enables people to, to stay where they are, you know, in that community, assuming it's a good fit for them and to keep participating and contributing to that community. Yeah. So you're so right about that. So so that takes us back to the beginning of the chat because you just framed the issue, I think, beautifully. You know, why should we do this? So people can contribute and make the world a better place. That's why. So, every, so they don't have to leave. <laughs> yeah, right. You How know? about that right there? So sometimes we all need a hand. And it's good to create housing that acknowledges that fact. So the first Minka we ever built was actually built for uh, our daughter, Jude and I have a daughter named Haley who lives with disability and who does have support coming to her in the house. And we designed the house to accommodate both Haley and her caregivers. Mm -hmm. And we do think that's an important element. And that's what I mean about the difference between moving into a little house that was never designed. It was not designed with aging in mind at all. Versus moving into a minka, totally different things. So, Mm -hmm. and you know, you're talking about community before. There's really no substitute for an authentic human community that you belong to. Right. You can't. You know, think about trees. You can dig up a little sapling and transplant it; it'll be fine. You cannot dig up a big oak tree, right, and move it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very grievous. Uh, to a tree to be above a certain size and to get moved or uh, beyond a certain age. And um, yet, ironically, we, we, we say to older people very often, oh, this neighborhood, this community, these relationships you've had all these years, forget all that. You have to use a walker. So now you have to live in this building over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, th- there's, that's nonsense. So Minka's meant just to create a bunch of new options for people help people get what they want, which is a place of their own, where they can live life the way they want to. That's, that's our goal. Right, right. So, so if somebody needed a family member to move in with them or, or somebody yeah. to be able to stay with them overnight or during the day, well, is a minka big enough or will there be maybe two-bedroom yeah, ones that could? Yeah, two-bedroom ones we have. But also, for example, in Haley's minka, we use a uh, furniture uh, it's actually made by IKEA that is a great kind of 
place that couch type thing, but also serves as a bed. And, you know, we, we make double use of space. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a table, for example, that folds down and out of the way. So when you're not using it, it doesn't take up floor space, things like that. Right. And yeah, we think that we're really at the start of thinking up clever ways to make the best use of small spaces. Yes. Well, I think also you've identified some sort of core themes that, that are important the, you know, for the, the, the space to be adaptable to multiple levels yeah. of ability. Sometimes we refer to that as it's not really totally accurate, but sometimes when we're talking, we talk about uh, a future-proof house. You know? Right. Exactly. So lots yeah. of different stuff can happen. Who knows what's going to happen, but... I, I know a guy in Seattle who was um, doing research and is an engineer and he was starting to look at aging. He's like, okay, I'm going to solve this. And uh, great guy, super smart. We were talking about, I was talking to him about housing and he didn't really want to hear about housing because he wanted to invent a gadget that was going to be like totally A robot awesome. that was going to do everything yeah. for you. Yeah, The popular exactly. one. And I'm like, yeah, no, wait a minute. It's the house. Yeah. And he didn't really get there. So then we stumbled into this conversation. You know how it is when you're going back and forth with somebody. So I said to him, what about your house? And he's like, oh my God, I love my house. And he had just moved in a year before. And I'm like, wow, okay. So you, you bought this house, you really love it. Tell me about the person who lived in that house before. And he's like, well, they lived there a long time, didn't really know a lot, but the husband had a fall, they were older people, had a bed fracture, and the front of the house had these winding stone steps that got up to the front porch, mm. and they couldn't figure out a way to get him into the house. Mm-hmm. And the inside of the house wasn't set up for limited mobility. So the engineer was living in a house that people who l- loved it for like 30 years had to move out on short notice because it was ill-suited to aging. And I'm like, what makes you think you're immune to this? You know? <laughs> oh, well, people always think they personally won't need any of these adaptive features, right? They think it's for somebody else. They do. Yeah, it's always for somebody else. Them. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's you know, kind of the optimism people have, but <laughs> it, yeah. it makes it, can be, make it hard to to gravitate towards something that is, is future-proofed. Well, so how many minkas are there right now? And have you had older adults living in them to give you kind of feedback and help you, you know, determine what might need to be, you know, modified or improved? We have two minkas in the wild at the moment. And the one at the university is actually being, it's on campus. We did one at the University of Southern Indiana. Uh-huh. I bet you can put some links on your site. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I, f- I have some stories that I'll share in the links. Oh, good, great. That are good about so, it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're using that as a, a lab to teach students about healthy approaches to aging and uh-huh. supporting people who are aging. And um, the next Minka that goes on our door, I was just at the shop today, is going to Loveland, Colorado, mm-hmm. and it's going to be an uh, elder living in there in the very near future, probably in February. Okay. And we're going to be very excited to hear the stories of that. Oh, great. And so for older adults who listen to this and say, okay, so what I need to do is think about, you know, my housing and my community and, you know, really yeah. living in a place 
that allows me to organize my daily life in a way that helps me thrive and reach mm-hmm. my potential and is also somewhat future-proofed. Right. You know? So if people listen to that and think, oh, I, I need to find something like that, what, what are your recommendations right now, given that we, we only have a, a few minkas available? Because people must ask you this. So where should I? I know. How should I, I consider uh, addressing my housing <laughs> issue or planning for my aging? Well, the, the number one thing is we are talking about the optimism, which is a, a, nature, it's a, a wonderful part of the human experience. But if you could even start by just looking at where you're living now mm-hmm. and ask how walkable is it, how adaptable is it, can it be can made more age-friendly easily or would that be really hard? Like these people with these stone steps right. was really, they couldn't find a way to do it. So, so how close are you to having what you really need? And maybe that's something you can get in the house you already have. Because remember, my thing is you should live where you want and you should live how you want. That's my thing. And if that means for you staying put right where you are, then at least do the work to figure out how future-proof your preferred housing really is mm-hmm. and be honest about it, okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then if that, you know, if you're contemplating a move and you can't get a Minka, and I probably you probably can't um, wherever you are listening to this yet, but I would look at housing that is in neighborhoods that are judged to be walkable and that do not require multi-level living without assistance of some kind, you know, lift or something mm-hmm. just as a starting point, if you're, if you're going to make a move. So right. uh, th- those are the basics. Right. And then, you know, you sort of talked about the, the beauty of this magic concept, right? Multi-ability, yeah. multi-generational, inclusive, communities. I know some people out there actually have the interest and energy to try to create the community that they wish they could yeah. find. Yay. The village, village movement is great. Love them. Yes. Although the village movement is, you know, partly they, they're not so much creating new, I mean, they're creating new, sometimes new social communities, but have you had any people reach out to you? Cause I know some people who are middle-aged are kind of thinking about creating co-housing developments, right? or pushing for new developments in their city to, I think usually the focus has been on, you know, it should be suitable for older adults, but it sounds like they could also try to really intentionally create something multi-generational and inclusive. Right. I I love that. And a concept we really like. So we like co-housing. We think co-housing is great. Can you tell us briefly what co-housing means? So co-housing is a group of people get together and say, let's live in a more intentional way. Let's develop a piece of property. We'll build the housing that we want. We'll make the houses smaller than is customary in American society, but we'll build a common house and we'll we'll kind of share that social space and we'll share a social life as part of our our life in a co-housing community. So I think it has a lot going for it. I think it's a really strong- And they could order some minkas potentially. Yeah, they could order some minkas. Uh-huh. Another approach is uh, something often referred to as the pocket neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So pocket neighborhoods are again smaller dwellings, but instead of facing at the toward the street and sort of a streetscape, they they tend to be clustered around a common green or a 
shared outdoor space. Mm-hmm. And sort of the front door is actually aimed at the front door of all your little pocket neighborhood friends, you know, mm-hmm. and you are just living up ah, in a, in an earlier era. This was called the bungalow court, uh-huh. a little cluster of bungalows sort of oriented toward each other where people could develop relationships with their neighbors. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new. We just keep, we just keep uh, recycling great ideas from a thousand years ago. Yes. Well, it's important to come back to those great ideas. You know, <laughs> There's a reason why they are great. So what is coming up for you and Changing Aging in 2019? First of all, are you going to go on tour again for the, yeah. the performances? We were just saying our next show is in uh, Loveland, Colorado. Okay. Uh, it's going to be around the time we deliver that Minka. So we might just drive out there, drop off the Minka and do the show. Um, is so this we, the Age of Disruption show? The, yep. The one, the one you've been doing it? Does it yep. change every year? Well, it changes every year. Constantly evolving. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we Growing. have a, yeah, we're going to be at the Rialto Theater in Loveland, Colorado. Uh-huh. We'll send you the date if you're, if you, I'm sure you have listeners out there. So yeah. Love to love that theater and looking forward to performing there. And it's going to be really fun. Okay. And uh, so we're doing that and we're going to make Minkas. I don't know, do whatever I can to create magic in America. Yeah. And these like magical communities. I mean, I love the idea of, you know, the magic community because that's a concept that you could create it with Minkas, but you could also create it in other ways. Other ways. Absolutely. I really want to emphasize that. That idea of multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive community, that's a cultural construct that right. can operate with lots of different technologies and architectures. And that's what we love about it. Yeah. It's a, it's a blank canvas, really. Yes. And then uh, will people soon for their co-housing be able to order sort of a dozen Minkas? Yes. Yep. Uh, in fact, that's happening. Uh, we're, we are, our Minka orders are booked out for 2019. Uh-huh. But uh, if people are interested and are thinking, wow, I'd like to do something like that, uh, they can go to myminka.com. Uh-huh. M-Y-M-I-N-K-A. You just leave us a note. Tell us what you're thinking. We're book solid for 19, and we would be looking at Minkas for people in 2020. So. Yeah. Well, I'm just looking forward to having you know more people living in them. Uh, me then too. we'll be able to sort of build so I, on, you know, on this idea. Every great idea gets iterated. So let's make a deal. How about if I come back and do this podcast a year from now? In another I would, year. I would love it. Yeah, we'll have the yearly changing aging update. I, okay. I, I would be super excited. So in closing, any last, you know, sort of thoughts or suggestions for the audience takeaways to help us realize this vision of a society that just better supports us in reaching our potential as we get older. Yeah, I, I guess the thing I would say is, um, which is a constant and ongoing struggle for me, and I suspect I'm not alone, is being aware, internally aware of my own ageist thoughts about myself and subjecting those ageist thoughts to scrutiny. You know, like I can tell you, I can't run as fast as I used to. That's true. Is that good or is it bad or does it not matter to me at this point (laughs) you know how can i be clear in my own head when i'm having when i'm participating in ageism directed at myself 
And that's something that uh, we can, every one of us can use more practice with is overcoming our own internal ageist biases. Right. Yeah. And then I guess thinking about our communities and how we can help make them more inclusive for people of all ages and all abilities. That was another theme that you mentioned quite a lot today. Well, Bill, thank you so very much. Always a huge pleasure and just amazing the way you pushed the envelope for, for all of us. So thank you so much. Till next time. Can't wait. Okay. All right. See you next year. See you next year. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.